have mercy upon us. Shine your face upon us, Lord God, as we come to your word. We come in need. We come with, with empty hands. We come to you. We offer nothing. You are everything to us, our, our only hope. We thank you for the love that we know in Christ Jesus. And we pray that you would assure us of that just now. Would you please speak uh, to your people, Lord God, that your flock might hear the voice, your voice, the voice of the good shepherd. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one of the hardest times that uh, personally that I've had in ministry, an occasion where a congregation that I served experienced uh, the most uh, opposition, I suppose you would call it. It came about seven or eight years ago um, in the city of London. Uh, so we as a congregation, so it was London City Presbyterian Church, succinct, catchy name, LCPC. Uh, we were engaging in some Christmas outreach at the time. So you, you all can guess the sort of thing, can't you? It was quite a musical congregation. And so what people were doing was singing Christmas carols in various parts of the city of London. So singing Christmas carols, we were also handing out flyers, inviting people uh, to your Christmas guest services. You know the sort of thing, you can imagine the sort of thing. And then really all of a sudden, some sort of opposition arose. It happened like this. A pastor um, of what we might call a, a liberal congregation, I suppose. Uh, the pastor heard about this and really didn't like the idea of a group of evangelicals active in the same, roughly the same part of London as they were in. So what did the pastor do? Well, the pastor tried to stop us uh, in our outreach. That was one thing. The other thing the pastor tried to do was use uh, their connections to have us evicted, tried to have us evicted from the building that uh, we were using for worship this is why I look so withered and tired. Uh, you can imagine, can you? Like how trying that is for a congregation to go through. But there was very much a clear knock-on blessing and benefit to that whole episode. And what those difficulties did was really force our congregation in London to go back to the Bible like all of this opposition, it really pushed us to delve deeper into Scripture to ask, is it worth it? Like, are we, are we doing the right thing here? Is, is this worth it? Resulting in what, I'll be honest with you, resulting in, I think, a greater zeal from that congregation. We went through this trial, came out the other side with a deeper conviction that, yes, yeah, worth it. No matter what the opposition is, it's worth it to testify to the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the big picture? What had God done? God had used challenge, opposition, to instruct his people. That's what I believe happened there. Like God used that really difficult episode to push our congregation and to push it deeper into God's word. 
Well, as you this morning come to church and you, you open the Bible today, right here, just now, isn't that kind of similar to what you see happening here? Maybe you're, you're sitting just now in church and you're wondering uh, why we are looking at the the sections of scripture that we are just now. Now, you noticed, did you, I hope that there were three blocks that we read. There's three sections of scripture that we read. So maybe, and it's legitimate to do this, you may be asking, what is it that holds the three blocks together? Well, maybe if you look again, you'll see it. Do you notice that in each of the three blocks here, the three sections, Jesus is prompted to speak by a challenge that comes to him from the Pharisees? Do you notice that? If you've got the text there, you'll see it in chapter 5, verse 33, then chapter 6, verse 2, chapter 6, verse 7, three times the Pharisees come. And the Pharisees come to question or to complain, and it's that that Jesus uses in order to instruct people. Do, Do you see what's happening? You do. It's a similar thing, isn't it? What's happening here in this section? Jesus is using opposition to instruct. To instruct whom? The Pharisees, yeah. To instruct his disciples, yes. I think there's a much bigger picture here. I think in these portions of scripture, Jesus uses the challenge of the Pharisees to instruct you and me this morning. He uses opposition to push you and I deeper into God's word, into God's truth. So can I ask you to do this? Can I ask you to make sure that you have your Bibles open? Let's look at these three portions of Scripture. And let's think about the first one there. And let's call this a challenge about fasting. That's the first thing we see here. A challenge about fasting. Fasting. Okay. Now, uh, last time we were in Luke's Gospel, as we studied, what was it? Do you remember? We studied... Uh, Jesus calling Levi. Hopefully you can remember that from a couple of weeks ago. So last time we were in Luke's gospel, we definitely heard, I think, the beginnings of what we call it, grumbling from the Pharisees. Can you recall that? There was a beginning of grumbling because Jesus was eating with sinners. Hopefully that, you can recall that. But that initial grumbling or moaning, it increases very quickly and it leads to what we have here. And what we have here is actually, I think, in Luke's gospel, it's the first overt challenge that comes to Jesus himself. So previously, the challenge or the grumbling of the morning, you'll remember it came to the disciples. This is the first time that there's an overt challenge from the Pharisees to Jesus himself. And you have, in verse 33, a complaint about fasting. If we're going to, Christian friend, if we're going to understand what we've got in this first section here, I think it is helpful to have a, a grasp on the, the situation at the time. I, I wonder if you would follow this. I think it's quite surprising, if I'm honest. But what we have to appreciate is that under the Old Covenant, so in the whole of the Old Testament, what we actually find is that God only ever prescribed one time of fasting for the people of Israel. You find that a little bit surprising? I mean, there were fasting, but God only mandated that the people of Israel had to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. So you have that. God mandated that. So once you have to fast a year to Israel. But what do we know about the Pharisees? What do we know about the Pharisees? We know that they love 
love to make rules, don't they? They love to add laws and, and regulations. And so by this time in history, so first century world, what the Pharisees mandated, wait for the change, is not once per year, the Pharisees mandated that people had to fast twice per week. Okay, that's quite a change, isn't it? So the Pharisees are mandating every, how would you like this, friends? Every Monday, every Monday, the Pharisees would say, every Monday and every Thursday, you have to go without. No tucker, right? No food every twice a week. Now, when you realize that that is the, the context here, it's obvious, isn't it, why Jesus' disciples not fasting, it's obvious why that would really stand out isn't it? So how does our Lord deal with this question or complaint? The Pharisees are coming, your disciples don't fast. So, so how does Jesus deal with it? Well, what Jesus does, if you look at it carefully, I think Jesus gives almost two types of answers to this question. We'll look at it one at a time. First is this, the disciples, his disciples are not fasting because that would be, here's the word, it would be improper. Get that word. It would be improper for the disciples to fast. If you've been at uh, St. Peter's <coughs> uh, recently, you remember that I said, or I talked about the fact that there was uh, a birthday uh, recently in our house. So my uh, youngest, she got into double figures. And you heard me talk to you about it. She also has probably talked to you about it as well. So a big celebration in the house. Now you all know what that looks like normally, don't you? You know what it looked like. You know, if a 10-year-old has a birthday, what happens? You've got the family at the, the kitchen table and you dim the lights, don't you? If you can dim the lights and I go through, don't I? And I mess about with candles and burn myself. Or, but what happens? I, I come back through carrying what? You know, happy birthday. You know, you come back through carrying the cake. Yeah, don't you? And you know, it's a time of celebration, time of joy. Well, imagine with Juliet... I had done this, okay? So the family's sitting at the table. You dim the lights. I go away, come back through carrying a tray. Happy birthday. But instead of a cake, I've got a bowl of cauliflower and cheese. How is that going to go down? Like even if I'm putting a candle on the cauliflower and cheese, I will tell you how it's going to go down. It's not going to go down very well at all. Why not though? It's not that, now some of you could disagree with me on this, but it's not because there is anything essentially wrong with cauliflower and cheese. Some of you might disagree with that. But why is it, why is it wrong? Because it's unsuitable, isn't it? At that juncture, it's improper. This is a birthday. Like a little girl turned 10 years old, it's a time for cake, isn't it? It's a time for celebration. It is improper. And don't you see, that is the point, the essential point that the Lord Jesus Christ is, is making here. Now, look at it with me. If we look at verse 35, look what he says about fasting. Do you see it there? He says, yes, okay, there, there will be a time to fast, a time to mourn. I think maybe Jesus has got one eye on, you know, his upcoming arrest. But why is that point with the disciples, why is that not the time to fast? What does Jesus say? He says, because the bridegroom is here. And I think from the youngest to the oldest and here, we follow Jesus' logic, don't we? 
Jesus was saying it would be insane. It would be illogical for the disciples to fast and use the spiritual discipline for the presence of God, seeking the face and the presence of God. Illogical to do that when all the time who's with them? Jesus is there. Why, why fast when the Son of God is walking with them and is present with them? The bridegroom is here. This is a time for joy. This is a time for cake. So that's the first reason he gives. It's improper to fast for the disciples there. The, the, the second is that, in a sense, it was Im, impossible. I wonder if you'd pick up your Bibles and, and look with me to verses 36 to 38. What do you see as you scan those verses? 36 to 38. I think you see, um, what are they? A couple of explanatory parables. Can we call them parables? I think we can. They're short. They're parables, explanatory parables. What do you think of these? I think they're pretty straightforward, don't you? I think they are. The first is about clothing. I mean, basically, it's the idea if you have a hole in your clothing... What do you not do, Christian friends? You don't go and buy a new garment from Next or Marks and Spencers and cut a hole in that garment and seek to sew it on. Why not? Here's the phrase. It's because it ruins both things, doesn't it? Not only will your new garment have a hole in it, <laughs> that's not great, but your old garment's going to have a mismatched patch in it. It ruins both things. That's the first parable, but what's the second parable? It's about, what is it? It's not clothing this time. You notice it's about wine. Jesus says, you, you don't pour new wine into old wineskins. Why not? Why not? Why not? What does new wine do? It expands, doesn't it? New wine ferments, it expands, it's going to burst the old wineskin. Do you see the same point? It ruins both things. What is Jesus saying to the Pharisees? He's saying that the Pharisees mustn't try to squeeze the newness of the gospel into their pre-existing ideas about religion. They mustn't take Jesus, the newness of what Jesus brings, and try to shoehorn it into their rigid, pre-existing ideas about how religious practice works. Why not? Because the gospel doesn't go. It doesn't work like that. Now, what about St. Peter's free church? Where does the rubber hit the road for us with any of this? I, I do think that there's an important truth for those who are present in the room this morning who are currently just interested in Christianity. That may be indeed uh, some of you. Perhaps you're dipping your toe uh, into the water and just seeking to learn a little bit more about the gospel and about the Christian faith. If that is you, what I think you're seeing here is the same I want you to hear this, that the gospel cannot be shoehorned into the existing ideas that we might have about religion and about how religion works. You can't squeeze the gospel into these pre-existing ideas about religion. What do I mean by that? Well, consider how society wants you to treat the Christian faith. Like I think you would say with me that 
you know, ideas about Christianity in Scotland are rapidly changing. Perhaps it's becoming a lot more antagonistic, is it, in the 21st century towards Christianity? But for, for so long in Scotland, it's been like this. Society has said, okay, if you have to, you can seek to be a Christian, follow Jesus, so long, so long as you keep all of that within certain restrictive bounds. Isn't that what Christianity says in Scotland? Or society, rather, in Scotland? It says, okay, you, you want to follow Jesus? You want to do that? Fine, so long as you don't take it too seriously. <laughs> you want to follow Jesus? You want to be a professing Christian? Well, you can do that so long as you keep those values subservient to the progressive values of the age in which you live. Do, do you see what's happening there in Scotland? It's the same as the Pharisees. Just like the Pharisees, our society is trying to shoehorn Christianity into a very restrictive mold. I want to say to you that simply does not work. Because what is the title that Jesus gives himself here? Did you notice it in verse 35? What was it again? Who is he? He's the bridegroom. Does that resonate, St. Piers? Do you know what it would have done with the Pharisees? Because they're experts in the law. They know the Old Testament, and they know that title, bridegroom, is a messianic title. Like the Pharisees would surely have heard that, and no, but it is God in Jeremiah, and in Hosea, and Ezekiel. It is actually God who is the bridegroom. It says people who is the bride. Do you see? The gospel cannot be squeezed into man-made rules because it is so much better and bigger and greater than, than, than all of that. What does the gospel proclaim in Jesus of Nazareth? God himself has come amongst us. Isn't that marvelous? And okay, Christian friend, there will be times where it is appropriate for us to fast. But what is the atmosphere of the Christian faith? As his people, we know great, great, great joy. Because by his Holy Spirit, we get to live in the presence of the bridegroom himself. So we see a challenge about fasting. Second of all, we see a challenge about the Sabbath. A challenge about the Sabbath. Okay, I think before we get into the excuse me, the nitty gritty of chapter six, the detail of chapter six. I do think it's worth us, you and I, taking a little step back just to think about the topic that God has brought us to just now. So I wonder where you are and where we are when we hear this topic, and it's the topic of what is it? The Sabbath. So I wonder where we are. What do we think? What is right? What is true? When we think about the Sabbath, you're already smiling at me, some of you. Okay, well, hopefully what we know, biblically speaking, is that God has implemented a principle in the Bible. What's the principle? Where one day in seven, it's a principle, one day in seven is to be set apart, set apart unto the Lord. I think we're okay there, aren't we? We can think about, even if we go back to creation, can't we, Christian friends? What's this pattern that God sets out for us, this pattern to follow? What does God do? God works six days and then he, and he rests. Okay, so this principle God gives us in Scripture, one day in seven set apart unto the Lord. Okay, that's fine. But wait, maybe already 
you wonder about that. Maybe already you look at me and you say, but is that principle not just for Israel? Was that principle one day in seven, was that not just under the old covenant? Well, no, not only does this one day in seven principle, not only does it stand in what we would call the moral law, we know this, don't we? You know, Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law, the civil law does not stand, but what about the Ten Commandments? The moral law continues, it is bearing upon us today. Not only is that true, but what happens in the New Testament? You good people, you know your Bibles. What happens in the New Testament? Not only does this principle continue on, but God even changes this day. Where under the old covenant, it was what? It was the seventh day, wasn't it? What about now? God changes it. Revelation calls the first day of the week now the Lord's Day. Now, I just want to pause and I want to ask you rhetorically why that was. So why is it in the New Testament that God changes this one day in seven principle to be the first day of the week? We know the answer, do you? We would say, of course, Andy, it's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the reason it's the first day of the week. But all I would ask you to do is to linger on the gospel picture that God gives you there that you should embrace. Think about under the old covenant. The people of Israel had to work. They had to slave away or earn, slave for six days to earn rest. Now, what has God done? All through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by grace, he gives us that rest. And as a response to that, we, we, we work. Do you see? Follow. From creation to Christ, the seventh day. From Christ until the moment where the sky split and he returns. It is now the first day of the week, the first day that is a day given over unto the Lord. Okay? We get the general picture. What about the specifics uh, of what Jesus says here? I want to let you into a, a little secret uh, very quickly. So the secret is that myself and my children are uh, incredibly sneaky. And it's, we're very sneaky when it comes to snacks and snacking. Incredibly sneaky when it comes to this. So, the prices of everything in the shops have increased, so this happens very rarely. Um, but if there are Pringles in a cupboard, and if Catherine is up the stairs, everything has to align, then myself and my children, we will very quickly mount a snacking mission. Now, it sounds okay, doesn't it? And some of you are thinking, yeah, you've done that as well. The problem is we're not very good at this. <laughs> and almost invariably, we will be caught red-handed by the enemy. Or not red-handed, but mouths filled with Pringles by the enemy. Well, that's daft. I know it's daft. Much more seriously, there's a parallel here when we're in chapter 6, isn't there? Because you can see what happens, can you? The disciples here, it's a Sabbath day. And the disciples are walking through the fields. They are in need. They are hungry. And they begin to snack. Okay, so far. But they are caught red-handed, aren't they? They're caught. And they are caught by these Pharisees. Now, I think it's ever so important for you to understand that what the disciples are doing there is not against the law of God. Have we got that? This is not 
uh, breaking scripture. What, what the Pharisees have in view is ludicrous. But what the Pharisees have in view are the, wait for it, 39 different laws that they had made up about Sabbath observance, okay? That's what they're thinking about. Laws that included you weren't allowed to rub pieces of grain between your fingers and so forth. But regardless, the Pharisees are up in arms. Like you can see this is a real complaint. So how does Jesus deal with this complaint? Well, I wonder if you would look at it with me. Maybe we can project verses three and four. Can you just have a look? There's no explanatory, explanatory parables this time. What do you see? Do you notice that our Lord takes the Pharisees this time straight to Scripture? And I've just, I've just commented that you know your Bibles well. So you know this portion of Scripture well, don't you? I think it's 1 Samuel 21. Do you remember it? Do you? Do you remember David is God's anointed king? Yes. But do you remember Saul is alive and Saul is chasing him down? Remember that? Saul is trying to kill David and David's on the run and he's on his run with his, with his friends and his colleagues and they're starving. They have nothing to eat. And what does David permit them to do? Do you remember? David permits him to go actually into the tabernacle and eat the bread, the special bread that was used in worship to break the ceremonial law and do it. Do you see why Jesus takes the Pharisees here? I think it is a an argument from the lesser to the greater and about the authority of Jesus. You can see, I think, if David, who was just a type of God's anointed, if he is allowed to break the ceremonial law, if there's need, how much more is Jesus, the true anointed king, allowed to break man-made rules if there is necessity, if there is need. Do you see an argument from the lesser to the greater, an argument about the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now again, our question, we want to live for Jesus, don't we? So our question is, well, what do we do with with this for, for, for our lives? I want to very briefly suggest two practical applications here at this juncture. Two. Number one, I want to suggest that individually, at St. Peter's, individually, that we review our understanding of and our approach to the Lord's Day. That would be my first suggestion to you as as a way of practical application, that we review our understanding of and our approach to the Lord's Day. What we find when we study the New Testament, it's remarkable. What we find is that nowhere in the New Testament scriptures does Jesus even begin to abrogate the Sabbath principle. So nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus take a red pen and run that through the Lord's Day or Sabbath observance. Nowhere. In fact, what do you have in front of you? In verse 5, look at that. How does Jesus refer to himself? Under the new covenant, Jesus is now, look at that. He is now the Lord of the Sabbath. Isn't that marvelous? Like far from abrogating the Sabbath, what do we learn? In the new covenant, it is now Jesus who stands authoritative over and due worship on this day that is set apart unto the Lord. He's Lord of the Sabbath. We embrace the principle. 
And then the second practical application is that as we do this, as we review the Lord's day, let's keep in mind the goodness of the day, Christian friends. Because I know every one of us in here, even if you're a stranger to Scotland, you will have heard horror stories about the Sabbath. I know that. I'm a Presbyterian minister. Boy, do I know it. You will have heard horror stories about a bygone era, you know, and Scottish Presbyterians and, and you know, how, how harsh they've been, how they've taken this glorious day and, and they've made it difficult and a burden for people. Well, okay, that's not how it should be. And what is it we learn here with Jesus providing For his disciples in that field, we learn about the permissions of this day. We learn that acts of necessity are, of course, permitted on the Lord's day. Let's bear in mind that the Sabbath is actually a gift for you, a grace for your benefit. Let's remember that the Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Okay, so we see a challenge um, about fasting and then the Sabbath. Most briefly, I assure you, thirdly, let's look at a challenge about mercy. And we, we, what we do is we just very briefly look into the last section here and we come to what your minister is going to say is the most ridiculous of all of these uh, Pharisees' objections. Now, as you, as you look at this last section, I think you can get the situation clear in your mind very easily. Um, look what Jesus does. He observes the Sabbath principle. And on the Sabbath day, he enters the temple, or he enters the synagogue. That's what he does. And who does he find? He, he finds a man with a withered hand, doesn't he? Now, what did the Pharisees say about this? I want to speak to the, the medics in the room, of which we have many. You're a doctor, you're a nurse. What do you think about this? So, so the Pharisaical laws at the time, oh, this is... You'll see what I mean about it being ludicrous. The Pharisees ruled that it was not lawful to heal a person on the Sabbath day unless they were going to die that day, okay? So, okay, you were allowed to to help a person and heal a person if they were going to expire maybe on the Sunday or the Monday, but, uh, you know, if they weren't, you were not allowed to go to that person and heal them. So what does Jesus do? I love, I'm sure you do, how Jesus responds to this ridiculous situation. Do you notice there's no cloak and dagger? Do you notice that there's no secrecy? No, to ensure that everyone understands a lesson about the Sabbath, Jesus takes this poor, infirm man, he stands him up before everyone in the synagogue, and he heals him. As controversial as it was, Jesus heals this man. Do you see the lesson for us? Like, I, I, I really do not think it is the same lesson as in the previous section. It is not the lesson that showing mercy is acceptable on the Lord's day. That is not the lesson. It's the lesson that ignoring need is unlawful on this special day. Let me phrase it like this. Acts of mercy, they are not just permissible, they are to be pursued on the Lord's day. Can I say it again so you get it? Acts of mercy, not just permissible, but they are to be pursued on this special day. And I, I, I stand up here and I think if we were to embrace that, 
That would transform family life. And I think that would transform congregational life in St. Peter's. What an effect it would have on our congregation and what an effect it would have on on our city if we embraced this. Like I ask you, what what does your Sunday or my Sunday, what does it look like now? Is it like this that we have a little bit of worship? Maybe, (laughs) depending on what's going on. And then after that is the day our own. A little bit of worship and and then our Sunday is just a day like any other. Look at this. See how radical this is. What we're seeing is that for those who are following Jesus, Sunday should be a day where we actively pursue those who are in need. Acts of mercy, not just permissible, but to be pursued on this Lord's Day. Today, Sunday is a day for worship. It's a day for rest. It's a day for joy. But it's a day for visiting the sick. It's a day for worship, a day for joy. But it's also a day for showing hospitality to those who are lost, those who are vulnerable, and those who are marginalized. Acts of mercy, not just permitted to be pursued in the Lord's day. And I'll, I'll close where I started, not in the city of London, but with the idea of opposition, opposition. Have you noticed how the Pharisees' attitude to Jesus is very quickly evolving. You know, two weeks ago when we were in this, they grumbled. What do we find here? Do you see the evolution? Here they are not just grumbling, but they are challenging. And then look at this, the end of our section. By the end, they are filled with fury. I doubt there's anyone in the room who does not know where this ends. What's the end point in the Pharisees challenging Jesus? We know that at the end of that road is an old, rugged cross. But I think what we have in front of us here in Luke's gospel is the very first hint towards Calvary Hill. Look at this in verse 35. I'll read to you what Jesus says. He says, see if you get the hint towards Calvary from Jesus. He says to the Pharisees, the days will come when the bridegroom is, two words, what are they? Taken away. Does that ring any bells? Remember who he's speaking to? He's speaking to experts in the Old Testament. Does it ring any bells? Taken away, taken away. Isaiah 53. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and by judgment, he was taken away. Here, even in Luke's gospel, the shadow of a wooden stake in the ground at Golgotha, it falls. And what would happen there? Well, praise God what would happen by Jesus submitting himself to a sin-bearing death. He secured something for you. (laughs) At Calvary, Jesus secured for you an eternal Sabbath rest. A time where you're not just going to meet Jesus. A time where you're not just going to see your Savior as he is. But a time where you are going to know the joy of being in the presence of Jesus. The presence of the bridegroom. And that forevermore. Friends, let's bow and let's pray.
Lord God, we uh, pray to you and we worship you for your word. Uh, Lord God, we've prayed in confession in our, in our service already, but if we have sinned as we uh, consider our attitude to a day that you have given us, a day where there's permissions and necessity, there's encouragements towards mercy, a day of rest, of rejoicing, and of worship. If we've sinned, forgive us, but lead us, Lord God, as our shepherd, lead us into truth, into obedience. As a congregation, help us. As individuals, help us. But we praise you for the one who is the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who is on, enthroned on high, and we thank you for the bridegroom. We thank you that we are his bride and all by your grace, we will see the Lord Jesus Christ in the end. And we pray in his name, amen. And we rightly